Welcome to A Year with Jesus, where we're learning to think, live, and love like Jesus. I'm Bill. And I'm Philip. And this is Matthew chapters 24 and 25. There is a lot of content in these chapters as Matthew is giving us more detail about the last week of the life of Christ. That's right. And, and at the beginning of chapter 24, they come out of the temple. We know that he's done these woes. And, and the disciples see the temple, and they're just kind of marveling at how beautiful the temple is. Yes, they're thinking about this as kind of the center of Judaism, the center of this kingdom. And they've been hearing Jesus speak about how different his kingdom is. And so it is startling to them to begin to think about a time period where these things won't be here. Jesus says, truly, not one stone here will be left upon another. And he's not talking about the city as a whole. We know that we can visit Jerusalem today and that parts of the walls are there, but he's talking about the temple, this place where worship has been centered. That's right. And so it seems like, actually, I just imagine if you were one of the apostles and you're hearing Jesus say this, that to them, the destruction of the temple for a second time after God had made promises that the temple was going to be there, that to them, it, 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 ha- it would have to equate with the end of the world. And so it seems like in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus addresses the destruction of Jerusalem while also making a distinction from possibly the destruction of the end of the world. That's right. And there's some overlap here, right? There's some principles of being ready and alert that are going to come up in these two chapters that are going to be useful for the Jews as well as are useful for us as Christians today. But we see in Matthew chapter 24 several indications that he begins the conversation focused on the destruction of the city. You'll notice that some of his language suggests that it is a localized judgment. Mm -hmm. Some of his language suggests that it's a judgment you can escape. You can literally flee from it. And if we think about the parallel passage over in Luke, we know that he specifically called out that it was the city of Jerusalem. That's Mm -hmm. right. No, for sure. And and you see, again, he's letting them know there are some things that are going to happen. You know, some people are going to come calling themselves the the, the Christ. You're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. And don't be alarmed because these things have to take place, I believe, even before the destruction was going to happen. Absolutely. And those were going to be useful indicators for the Christians in the first century to start to notice that things were intensifying in the Roman opposition to the city and that things were going to get harder for them in a very real, very physical sense. And Jesus actually is giving his disciples instructions you don't have to go down with the ship. Yeah. You don't have to sit there and suffer through this. In fact, you can use the wisdom and the discernment to draw yourself out of that worldly consequences because you're not part of this world. That's right. And it seems like he even gives them, he's trying to warn them, not just of the, of the destruction, but I, I think in part of even how people are going to respond to that destruction in 9 through 14. He'll say like, look, some of these bad things are going to happen. He'll say, and some people, some people are going to fall away because of what's happening. Other people are going to be misled because of these false teachings. And some people, they'll just cool off and they'll just leave. But you need to endure through all of this. That's a wonderful emphasis there on endurance and just that recognition of those warning signs that are there. So that was going to allow them to see this wasn't a surprise to God. Mm -hmm. This wasn't his plans failing. This was Jesus speaking prophetically about what was going to happen and the heartbreak that he exhibited at the end of chapter 23 is seen in a whole much richer light because of this insight. That's right. And so then he gets into, and so this destruction is going to happen. And so you need to, and and I, I think it's important to see what Jesus says. You need to leave. 
You need to flee. This is this is a sinking ship, and you should not stay here. Regarding, you just imagine the affinity that the Jews, even these Jewish Christians, would have had yeah. to their homeland. Absolutely. Jesus says, "Hey, there's a different homeland that you belong to now," and it, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But but you have to get out. You can't stay here. That's right. And so as you get down to chapter twenty four, verse thirty four, there's a really critical passage that every Christian needs to be familiar with. Jesus says in Matthew twenty four, verse thirty four. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. We understand that there is some overlap in application for Mm -hmm. how we prepare for eternal judgment. But as we think about the original context of Jesus' discourse here, verse 34 makes makes it very clear that he is talking about this city and its destruction. Now, to your point, there's still some huge applications in that for us today, aren't yeah, there? Absolutely. Because again, he'll say a little bit later on, which even 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 maybe more so for us, because he'll say, but of that day, no one knows. And I think maybe referring to the end of the world, if the destruction of Jerusalem, if he described it the way that he does in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 34, in the way that he does, if the destruction of Jerusalem is a foreshadowing potentially to the destruction of the world, how much more so do we need to flee the things of the world? How much more so do we need to unplug from things here to really get out and be ready for the place that God has prepared for us and for us to know that God, we don't know when, but that God is going to come. That's right. And verse 37 and 38 really highlight that, this idea that uh, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, that in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. It's the idea that the world was oblivious Mm -hmm. to what was about to happen, and Jesus has prepared his disciples in this context for what was about to happen to the city and is ultimately preparing all of us to know that there is more to life than just our daily routines. There's more to life even than just our families. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I believe he says, so stay awake. Because I think sometimes that daily routine can kind of make us fall asleep. You know what I mean? You, You do the same thing over and over and over and it becomes monotonous and you almost, you're on autopilot. And so I think that's why he'll start to say things like, you have to get ready. You have to be ready for his coming, which which I think in some ways lends itself into chapter 25, because 25 seems to be a series of parables that he preaches to get people ready for his coming. Yeah, so if you think about the arc of how these two chapters are connected, he's given us a lot of details and how that generation could recognize what was happening to the city. And all of those details have kept them mentally focused, mentally sharp. And so now that alertness and the fruitfulness that he's talked about in verse 32 is spilling over really into this series of parables. I love this first parable here in verse 42 to verse 51 about being ready. Mm-hmm. What kind of what kind of thing was Jesus expecting from his servants in that parable? Yeah. Again, he says like, look, do you know when a thief is going to come to your house? And the idea is, no, I don't know, but that's why I lock my door every night just in case tonight is the night that he's going to come. That I think sometimes we have this perception where like, well, you know what? At the very end, on the last day, I'll just make sure that I say, I'm sorry, God, forgive me, and that everything is going to be okay. It's like, yeah. And that's not the way that it works, that, that you have to be prepared ahead of time. The same thing when he talks about the faithful and prudent slave who his master puts in charge of the household, that he doesn't know when the master is going to come home, but he's been making himself ready and that that slave is blessed because of his readiness. And you know, I think it's really important to notice in the parables here at the end of 24 and into 25 that Jesus uses uh, the idea that the master is going to be gone for a long time. Mm -hmm. Certainly there are passages in the New Testament that suggest the return of Christ is imminent and that we should be ready at any moment. But also there's this thing that we're not supposed to be surprised 
that he has delayed out of his loving kindness, that he's delayed out of his long suffering, Mm -hmm. giving us the opportunity to actually be this kind of servant, that when he returns, he will find us ready, that he'll find us, you know, with our hands engaged in the good work he's left for us. Amen. Amen. And again, and so I think that's why maybe going into chapter 25, he starts to compare the kingdom of heaven to people who are ready. So he starts this first parable with these 10 virgins who they take their lamps to, to meet the bridegroom. And, and Philip, you know, all, all 10 virgins have their lamps. So what's the difference between the foolish ones and the prudent ones? Like, what are we supposed to observe from that parable? Well, I love the idea of these young women that they know when to say no. Mm -hmm. They are so committed to their readiness for the Lord in this story, so committed that they have to say no to some other people. And I think all of us struggle sometimes with our own boundaries, Mm -hmm. our own limits, maybe our own desire to impress others, that we need to come back around and say, you know what, to say yes to God in this area, I have to say no to you over here. And it's not because I don't care about you, not because I don't want you to succeed. In fact, I love that these wise women even recommend where they can get some more oil. They recommend a course of action to them, but their first priority is clearly in their own alertness and readiness. I love that. And I wonder, again, even in in addition to that, you can't pass off spiritual readiness. Yeah, you can't. You know, well, Philip, you've been a Christian 20 plus, 30 plus, I don't know how you, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Don't get into that. You've been a Christian a long time. Well, Philip, just give me a year of your Christianity. Well, give me some of your Bible knowledge. Well, give me some of your spirituality. It doesn't work like that. And and these these foolish, you know, the the foolish virgins, they want some of the oil. And and I think in part, it's like, we can't pass that off. You have to decide. And so maybe if if we've been foolish virgins in in this story, if we haven't been ready, you, you won't be able to just glean the spirituality of other people without putting in the work yourself. And I think that's part of the readiness is putting in the work. Right. And well, in the picture of the the foolish virgins here is that they were asleep, mm-hmm. right? We have a lot that we can learn from each other, a lot we can edify one another, but not if somebody's asleep at the wheel. That's right. right. And they're wasting the opportunity. They're wasting their time that they could have been preparing and trimming their lamps. And this is supposed to be a day of joy. The parable is of a wedding. Yeah, I right? love that. So everyone all 10 could be ready, and it is foolish of us not to approach that day of joy with our lights really shining. That's right. And again, and the time here is unknowable. You don't know when the bride is when the bridegroom is going to come, which kind of lends itself to the very next parable where you have this man who has these three servants, and he gives them different talents for different amounts of money, and he goes for a time, and they don't know when he's going to come back. But But again, even in this parable, you have two guys who do something and one guy who doesn't. And what's the big what's a what's a big takeaway from from this parable here, the parable of the talents? The parable of the talents is one of my favorites because I just refuse to be the guy that's buried mine. And mm-hmm. I hope everybody listening to the podcast can just say to themselves this week, I will not bury my right. talent, right? That we're all going to serve in different ways. We're all going to serve in different roles. And God is not so interested in what the final, you know, financial gain, like the the big reveal at the end. He's interested did you take what I blessed you with mm-hmm. and use it to my glory? So none of us should be burying our talents because the, it, there is going to be a day that the master comes to evaluate how we used our lives. And did we use each moment and each gift he provided us with to build up his glory, to build up his kingdom? Did we use this in a way that he can actually describe as faithful? And again, and I, I think like I, I love what you were saying there because the expectation is not the same for every single person. I mean, the, the 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 man who had five talents, the expectation was that he would produce five. The man who had two, it wasn't that he would produce five, but that he would produce 
too. And and I, and, I, and maybe the one talent man was telling himself, well, you know, I just, I'm not going to do as much as those guys can. Right. I'm not going to do as much as she can. Or, and I think sometimes we can get into this comparison game as Christians. Well, I can't do what this Christian can. I can't teach how this person can. I don't pray the prayer. I can't serve the way. Man, the thoughtfulness that this sister has, I just, I don't possess that. And you can get so discouraged saying, well, you know what? I'm just going to try to just... I'll just be here. I'll never do anything, but I'll just be here. Right. And we see that the Lord, he's just, he is not okay with that. And he was afraid of wasting, of losing the talent. At the end, he still lost that. It was taken from him. He lost the talent plus punishment came. That's right. He totally misses out on the joy of his master from having used the talent. Yeah. And we, we need to avoid that comparison game. Absolutely. And you see that the master has given them so much flexibility mm-hmm. in how they use their talents. And we think about the commandments that God has given us. Certainly, He has very direct commandments about our morality and our righteousness. But boy, He has given us a lot of individual freedom to pursue a variety of good works. We just need to make sure we jump in and perform them. Amen. Amen. I love that. Again, and there's you. Can, we can't just kind of try to play it safe in Christianity. You have to be growing. You have to be trying to advance because, again— as he kind of talks about when the Son of Man comes in glory, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, God is going to separate the sheep from the goats. There aren't, you know what, there aren't any like half sheep goats. You know what I'm saying? Where That's you're right. Like, I'm kind of half and half where I'm a little bit of both. You're either sheep or you're goat. And, and these servants, like the, the one talent man, ended up being a goat. The five foolish virgins, they ended up being goats. Even though for a while they were in, they were with the other ones at the end, after the final judgment. Yes. There was a separation. And, you know, if you think about the big arc all the way back from the beginning of the book of Matthew, we've been looking at Jesus and we've been learning what he desires from us mm-hmm. in our hearts. He desires faith, and we've seen faith celebrated all through this book. He desires repentance. We've seen repentance celebrated throughout this book. He desires people that use their lives, that confess him openly, like Peter did back in Matthew chapter 16. And now we see that one other aspect of our judgment is, what kind of mercy have we shown? That's right. What kind of care have we shown? What do you? What really stands out to you here? Yeah, that you know, as he talks about, come you who are blessed in, in the house of my father, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which he has prepared for you for the foundation of the world in verse 34, you would assume that to inherit that kingdom, you need to do some incredible, you need to go and, you know, slay, sure. slay armies and do this. And then he says, you gave people things to eat and you clothed people. And when people were alone and cast off and in prisons, you went and you visited them. And some people will say, well, we never, you know, when, when were you in those situations? Right. He says, when you did it to people, when you did it to strangers, that's when you did it to me. And the preparation that he's required of us here, again, it's a, it's a life that's lived in service to, to God, but really through the service of people. Yes, those daily kindnesses, that loving our neighbor as ourself, right? It's part of how this love for God flows out of us mm-hmm. in our daily choices, in our daily actions. You know, there's some key language here at the end of chapter 25 that we should not overlook. Uh, yeah. He describes the outcome for both the sheep and the goats as eternal. Mm -hmm. What's special about that? Yeah, this is not like annihilation, you know? And and I think sometimes people think, well, it's fine. I'll do whatever I want to do. I won't be prepared because at the end of the day, I'll just cease to exist. And that's, that's not the punishment here. The punishment here is eternal punishment. Right. Which is contrasted from the e- like eternal life. Yes. That joy and abundance and this permanence where you will never be. If you think about like in the other situations, people were cast off. There is no being cast off either from the punishment or from the life that God is offering us. Yes. This eternal quality that's mentioned in verse 46, it carries that idea of fullness, mm-hmm. fullest measure. So we can have life 
to the fullest measure. We can have life in the presence of God. We can have life in transformed bodies. We can have life full of love with no more temptation, with no more suffering, or we can be fully separated from God. We Mm. can have the greatest punishment, and we do not want anyone to suffer that. Christ doesn't want anyone to suffer that, which is why he's gone to such great lengths through all of these messages, first to prepare them for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. and then ultimately for our souls to be prepared. So as we look at Jesus getting us ready through these two chapters, what should stand out about our Lord? I I think, again, like you were just saying, we need to appreciate Jesus's desire to save his people. Even in chapter 24, as he's telling them about the destruction of the Jer- Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, they might have thought, we're losing everything that, that makes us, our identity, everything that makes us important, everything. And Jesus is trying to help them understand, I am the temple of God. You may lose Jerusalem. You may lose that temple. In fact, into, tw- into chapter 25, you may lose the world. And as long as you have me, you will have life. I think Jesus is helping us understand that he is the center of all things. He is the center of everything that's good. He is the center of who we are as people. He is the center of life, that he is the king of the kingdom. And as long as you have the king, you have the kingdom. You know, Bill, coming from New York, so many people think of a place like that, you know, Times Square being the center of it all. And Mm -hmm. I think the Jews are doing the same thing. They're thinking of the temple as just the center of it all. But you're right. Jesus himself is the center. The king is the center of the kingdom. That's right. So Philip, what are some things, if the king is the center of the kingdom and he's giving us all these warnings, he's, I believe in this, you see him protecting his people by letting them know what's going to happen, by warning them. Think about how many Jews who didn't believe in Jesus, didn't flee, ended up being destroyed. Clearly Jesus here is taking care of his people what, what are some lessons maybe for us today? Jerusalem's are, you know, in that way has already been destroyed, but what are some lessons for us today that we can glean from chapters 24 and 25? Well, definitely it's this idea of being constantly engaged in, right? Mm. Just that our life has a rhythm where we are constantly engaged in the good works that bring glory to God, but not by ourselves, mm. you know? You can think about the opportunities that we have to help others to come alongside and to take care of that hungry person, to take care of that stranger, to share the clothing that needs to be shared, to just really show that love of Christ. We don't have to do that all by ourselves. So I think there's a big idea there, but also I just can't get out of my mind the idea of these young women that were saying no when they needed to say no Mm. so they could say yes to what was best. And I think all of us have people competing for our attention. We all have people competing for our talents. And Jesus is saying, you know, the best use of those is in things that make an eternal difference. Amen. And so you can make that eternal difference with a coworker. You can make that eternal difference with a neighbor. You don't have to quit your job and move somewhere like far, far away. You can make that eternal difference with the people that you interact with on a daily basis by really being like those wise women that kept their light shining, knowing that the bridegroom was coming and they were going to be ready for that day of joy. Amen. And we've got to warn people. Because a day is coming when the Lord will return and all things here will come to an end, but not all things will come to an end because our souls will exist in one of two places. And that's a reality that exists that we need to be we need to be ready for, but we also need to warn people about. That's fantastic. So thank you so much for listening to A Year with Jesus. Next week, we will be in Matthew's chapters 26 and 27. If you want to listen more, go to embryhills.com slash podcast.